What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. My name is Eric Gasco, and you are listening to the Distorted History Podcast. To speak the truth, both truth, frankly, and boldly. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. Unreasoning, unjustified terror. A long struggle for freedom. It really is a revolution. Giacomo Beltrami was born in 1779 in the Lombardy region of Italy. He was the 15th of 16 children, so he was in no way in line for any inheritance. As a result of this, his father decided he should be a lawyer. And even though Giacomo probably would have had to follow his father's wishes in this regard, history had another plan. When Napoleon's armies invaded northern Italy and took control, Beltrami would go with the way the winds were blowing at the time. Instead of becoming a lawyer, he would join up with Napoleon's army. Beltrami would do well in Napoleon's service and rise to become an inspector general before being appointed as a judge in the civil and criminal courts. He would unfortunately become very ill, but would recuperate under the care of the wealthy and powerful Countess de Albany. Not only did she have him back to health, but she would introduce him to numerous powerful and important figures in Europe. So things were looking up for Beltrami. He was rising in the ranks of Napoleon's government and was making connections to the rich and powerful Europe. Then tragedy struck. A close female friend of his, another Countess, Giulia Spada de' Medici, would die and her death would devastate Beltrami. Also, around the same time, Napoleon's regime would fall and the new government did not look kindly upon one who had served so well in the previous government. They called him a political conspirator and exiled him in 1821. So at age 42, Beltrami would become a political refugee. Along the way, he'd write down letters to his dear countess and I've seen two interpretations of which countess he was writing to. One source I found said he was writing to his old friend, the Countess de Albany, who had taken care of him and had introduced him to other rich and powerful figures. But another said he was writing to the Countess de Medici, who had died. And I'm not really sure which is true, even after reading through some of his book, which consisted of these letters. He only ever addressed her as my dear Countess, so he was either a very broken man continuing to write to his dead friend of his exploits, or he was informing an old ally and patron of his journeys. Now exiled, Beltrami started traveling, going on what he called a pilgrimage. He wanted to see and do everything expected of a gentleman traveler, and that meant going on a grand tour of Europe. 
He went to France and to Germany, seeing the great art and architecture of those countries had to offer, before going on to England. Once in England, he decided to continue his adventures in the New World. So on November 3, 1822, Giacomo boarded a small American merchant vessel in Liverpool destined for America. From the start, you probably could have guessed this trip wasn't going to go well. The ship's cook had deserted, which is not good. You not only don't have a cook, which is probably kind of important, but there was probably a reason why he ran off. That's a couple of red flags right there. The captain, in response, assigned the normal cabin steward to be the new cook. So they were now down a cook and a steward, and as it turned out, their captain was a drunk. Beltrami was equally disappointed both in the quality of the food and the wardrobe, and to make things worse, he would be laughed at for asking for implements to wash with. Beltrami also didn't seem to help matters by trying to treat members of the crew like they were servants. So he's a bit of a fancy boy, but I'm equally bothered by everyone else seemingly not washing and being okay with it. As time went on, it became even more obvious that the quality and amount of supplies on the ship seemed to be seriously lacking, with the food either rotting or running out. But when Beltrami went on deck one day to get some fresh air, he saw a pig with an ear of corn in his mouth. He then asked the captain if he could have some of the corn for himself, to which the captain replied, What shall I give my pig then? This is the worst ship ever. The ship was filthy. The stench on board was terrible. To make things worse, they were delayed for weeks by storms off the Irish coast, but the captain refused to turn around to the nearest port for much-needed supplies. To pour salt in his wounds, two of his fellow passengers repeatedly raided his private stock of wines until there were no more. He believed these two to be off-duty pirates. Whether they actually were, he just thought so because they kept stealing his wine, we'll never know. As their journey continued, they were still plagued by gale-force winds, almost shipwrecked, and had fistfights amongst the crew. Then, by some miracle, they managed to make landfall in Philadelphia. As Beltrami scrambled to shore, he was convinced he just narrowly escaped dying on the ship, and he probably wasn't wrong. Once he had recovered, Beltrami resumed his travels and his correspondence with the Countess, whichever one he was writing to. He wasn't overly impressed by the architecture he found in Philadelphia, writing, Like the English, they will insist on knowing everything of themselves without being in the slightest degree indebted to foreigners. This sort of conceit is not very favorable to their architecture, though exceedingly so to their patriotism. They would, however, do wisely to keep it to the simple... If they will ascend to the heights of the Parthenons and Pantheon capitals, they must learn that they must go and study in those countries where the art is understood, or get foreigners to come and teach them what they do not know. This is equal parts arrogant and not entirely unfair. He left Philadelphia and went on to Baltimore, which he much preferred to Philadelphia because even back then he found the people of Philly lacking in courteous manners and weren't as amicable as the people of Baltimore. Sorry, Philly. He then made his way to the Capitol in Washington, D.C. He felt that the Capitol building was impressive in size, but he nitpicked many of the details of the architecture and mused that the reason why it had steps on the outside instead of a grand staircase within where carriages could 
drop off the senators was because leaving them out in the rain to walk up to the building was more democratic. His book is full of these weird opinions on government. This was also apparently a time when you could just walk right into the White House and meet the president. Beltrami simply walked up to the White House, found that the door was open, and walked right in. Once inside, he found another open door and continued in, calling out if he could meet the president. He was finally greeted by an old man who he asked if the president was home, and if so, could he meet him? The old man informed him that he was meeting the president right now. The old man in question was none other than President Monroe, who actually sat down and talked with the Italian traveler before they were interrupted by a senator. Still, he was not a fan of the American form of government, preferring a monarchy, believing it was easier to control the passions of one person than that of a whole population. As he continued on his journey, he found the roads detestable, but would be quite impressed by Kentucky calling it America's Eden. As for the people there, he described them as industrious, enterprising, and brave, but also insolent and coarse. As for American women, in general he found them, quote, agreeable without forwardness, modest without affection, well-informed without pedantry, and excellent housewives. In all, he found them far superior to their male counterparts. He did worry about the co-ed educational system, as he worried that opportunity could prevail over the most austere principles. On April 20th, 1823, Beltrami arrived at the point where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers met. His plan was to take a steamboat to New Orleans, and from there go on to Mexico. When he arrived, though, there were no boats heading in that direction, but there was one heading north for St. Louis called the Calhoun. He decided to abandon, or at least delay, his plans and boarded the Calhoun. On board, he met an Indian agent assigned to Fort St. Anthony named Lawrence Talaferro, who he instantly felt a connection with because he too was of Italian descent, and even was able to speak in Italian to Beltrami. He pestered the Indian agent with questions about the area they were heading towards and of the native people who lived there. The descriptions of the Indians in particular piqued the interest of the Italians' romantic nature. Beltrami asked questions about the pioneers, was captivated by descriptions of the scenery, and was very interested in the Native Americans and their antiquities, as he called them. The Italian also loved the curiosity he generated and the attention he received from the Indians. He played the part, telling them through interpreters that he was neither American, nor British, nor French, or Spanish, as they were the Europeans they were used to dealing with. He instead decided to tell them that he came from the moon. On that steamboat, the former judge decided he was going to become an explorer and geographer, despite a complete lack of training or experience in either occupation. To further pique his curiosity, Beltrami saw some Indian burial mounds at St. Louis, and he would compare them to important ancient sites like the pyramids at Giza, Mithraic temples, and the Parthenon. He would also be inspired when he visited the American Indian Museum that General William Clark had established in a large council room where he would often receive tribal delegations. This collection contained artifacts ranging from strings of wampum to painted buffalo robes, saddles, powder horns, numerous animal skins, and even a large pipe. While in St. Louis, he even attended a fancy ball where, according to Beltrami, the women were so pretty and so well-dressed they made him forget he was on the threshold of savage life. But the day after the ball, Beltrami and Major Talaferro were off again aboard another steamship, the Virginia. 
This would be the first steamship to attempt the upstream journey to Fort St. Anthony. This was important because no one at the time knew whether or not it could make it through the rapids on the way there. Beltrami became like a little kid on a long road trip, constantly asking the crew about the boat's progress and hanging over the rail to watch the paddle wheel work against the rushing waters of the rapids. While on this boat, Beltrami also began his collection of what he called Curiosities of the Savages by acquiring the scalp of a Dakota chief from one of his fellow passengers, Great Eagle, who had killed the opposing chief. Whenever the ship came to a stop, he also took the opportunity to go off on a little adventures of his own. Armed with his rifle, pistols, and a sword, he set off into the woods one day as the ship stopped to take on some wood presumably to fuel its engines. He killed a rattlesnake whose skin would be added to his collection, and he tried hunting some wild turkeys they looted him. As he made his way back to where he left the Virginia, the ship seemed to elude him as well. Upon finding himself abandoned in the wilderness, Beltrami took off running down the riverbank, firing his gun, hoping to alert the ship of his plight. Hearing nothing in response and quickly exhausted, Beltrami was about to give up when a canoe rounded the bend of the river. The Italian had lucked out. The Virginia had gotten stuck on a sandbar right around the bend of the river, and during that delay, the others on ship realized he was missing, and they had sent a canoe back to look for him. For anyone else, you'd think this might have been a warning that he wasn't exactly, you know, prepared for going out into the wilderness, but nope. This would not slow him down one bit. Their destination, Fort St. Anthony, was the northernmost outpost for the American army in the region. Beyond it, the land was relatively inhospitable with poor soil and bad drainage and a harsh climate. We're talking Wisconsin weather here. That was not inviting the settlers, so it was left to bands of the Dakota and Ojibwa tribes also known as the people who used to have all the land to live on, not just the worst that no one else wanted. The area was of interest for one reason. It was the frontier between the United States and Canada, which meant it warranted further exploration into what is now Minnesota. This was why Major Stephen Long would arrive at Fort Anthony around roughly the same time as Beltrami did. He was to lead an expedition to map and define the line of the U.S.-Canada border. This was great for Beltrami, as the commander of the fort, Colonel Snelling, despite being charmed by the untrained Italian tourist, was not about to allow him to go unescorted into the tribal lands beyond the fort, because he would be responsible if he were to, you know, die out there, which was very likely. Long, on the other hand, did not like Beltrami and did not want to bring him along on this dangerous journey. But why wouldn't you want to bring along this totally inexperienced, overly enthusiastic former lawyer with a high opinion of himself on a potentially dangerous expedition? But Beltrami would not give up, and with Talaferro's help, he was able to convince his new friend, Colonel Stelling, that he should be attached to Long's expedition nonetheless. So Long was ordered to take Beltrami along with him. Long, who was running a military expedition, still tried to dissuade Beltrami from his chosen course. First, he told him of the numerous dangers they may face out there in the wilderness and how hard the journey would be. But Beltrami just laughed at these so-called childish terrors, which was awfully cocky coming from the man who was sure he had nearly died on the ship over here from lack of supplies and seemed to panic the thought he had been left alone in the wilderness not that long ago. 
Long then changed tactics and tried explaining to the Italian how much it would cost for a civilian like himself to undertake such an expedition in terms of equipment and supplies. Still, Beltrami would not be put off and sold his repeater to buy a horse and the supplies he needed. Because of this interaction, Beltrami believed Long to be rude just because he didn't want to take along an untrained and unprepared civilian into the dangerous wilderness where he and his men would be responsible not just for their own safety, but this tourist as well. But on July 7th, they set off. The group consisted of Major Long, a lieutenant, 28 soldiers, an astronomer who was in charge of determining their route, a zoologist to make educated observations of the animals they encountered, a professor of mineralogy and chemistry to take rock samples, a landscape painter to help with the mapping and to draw pictures of Indian life, and one Italian who was basically on vacation. They also had along with them a pair of guides, Joseph Snelling, who was the colonel's son, and Joseph Renville, who was one of the most famous frontiersmen in the region. He was half Dakota, and an experienced scout highly respected by the Native Americans. He'd once served as a captain in the Irregulars working for the British during the War of 1812, and now served as an independent guide and fur trader. One of these things was not like the others. When they reached the settlement at Pembina, Beltrami decided to go on his own and separate from the rest of the expedition. He'd gone it into his head that he would discover the source of the Mississippi River, but had finally learned at Pembina the course the expedition was going on. Long had to this point not shared this information with his unwanted companion, because why would he? Once Beltrami learned that they were heading in the opposite direction of where he believed the source of the river would be, he chose to strike out on his own, despite many warnings against this choice of action. Beltrami believed he had to work his way back to where the Red and what he called the Bloody Rivers met, and he believed if he followed the Bloody, he would reach the location of the source of the Mississippi River. He'd sell his horse and hire an interpreter and two Ojibwe Indians as guides. He'd also be accompanied by a pair of dogs who would pull behind them a little cart that was loaded with the Indian artifacts he had collected along the way. It wasn't long before the two dogs were exhausted from pulling his souvenirs, so instead he packed all of his belongings onto some mules. And why he didn't do this from the start? I have no idea. On their journey, he would claim he killed some white bears that were the only dangerous animals in the area and I'm not sure if he was just making stuff up here or what. I googled white bears, and there is a very rare endangered species of white bears in British Columbia that are now apparently even more at risk from an oil pipeline. But that's not exactly close to the region we're talking about. Maybe they used to inhabit the region, or he's just full of it and was trying to make himself look cooler for the Countess. I'm not sure. He did, however, claim that the bears sucked on their paws for sustenance to survive as they hibernated through the winter, so at the very least he had no idea what he was talking about. Either way, he would encounter some very real problems on his journey soon enough. The journey up the river wasn't easy, and they would have to get into the woods to drag the canoes forward over slippery sharp rocks where the rabbits grew too strong. Also, his interpreter had only agreed to accompany him so far, and promised that he'd find another to join him for the rest of the journey. But there were none to be found. Beltrami tried to convince his translator from Bambina to stick with him, but he pieced out as quick as he could and headed back home. It's almost like he saw Beltrami in action and realized he made a mistake and got out as quick as he could. So there the Italian was, 
in the American wilderness with a couple of Ojibwa Indians as guides, who he could only communicate with through hand gestures. What could go wrong? Well, on the morning of the 14th of August, Beltrami was awoken from his sleep in the canoe by the sounds of gunshots. Five or six Dakota Indians were on the bank shooting at him and his two guides. When he sat up, though, they seemed surprised by his white skin and took off, but one of his guides had been shot in the arm. After this, his guides were understandably spooked, fearing another ambush by the Dakota. The one guy really didn't want to get shot again, and they figured that by taking the river, they would be sitting ducks for repeated attacks. They instead wanted to cut across the land to the next village to get help. That journey would take two days, while the same journey by the river would have taken six. So they argued, largely through sign language, but Beltrami would not be swayed. He could not leave his canoe, supplies, or most importantly, his collection. So the two guys, who obviously knew what they were talking about, and whose advice Beltrami should be taking, since he, you know, hired them to be his guides, took off overland, leaving Beltrami alone with his collection and his canoe. Everything was going exactly to plan. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Quick note here that Beltrami refers to the Native Americans I call the Dakota as a Sioux. Oftentimes you find tribes having multiple vastly different names because the Europeans asked a tribe who did not like the other tribe who they were and the name they gave them was insulting in their language. It would be like asking someone, who's that family that lives next door? And being told, oh, they're the idiots that live in dirt. And then going next door and constantly referring to that family as the idiots that live in dirt, like it was their name. I don't know if this is one of those exact cases, but I went with Dakota nonetheless. So there he was alone in a land he did not know, with no guides, in an area which, by the way, he had been shown with 100% clarity that was not safe. But things were not all bad. He still had his supplies, he still had his collection of antiquities, he had his rifle and red umbrella, and most importantly, he still had his canoe to make his way by river to his destination. There was just one small issue. He didn't have the first clue how to paddle it by himself. So he loaded his rifle for protection against the white bears, who I'm still not sure if they even existed, because according to Beltrami, the Dakota didn't scare him despite just putting a hole in his guide's arm. He was determined to continue, and so he hopped in his canoe and tried to make his way forward up the river against the current. And it went about as well as you might expect. He went backwards more than he went forward. Then, when he tried even harder to make headway, he upset the canoe, filling it with water, 
and forcing him to hop out and drag it along shore to rescue his cargo. He drained the water out and set his cargo up to dry and once again continued on his way. But according to Beltrami, he wasn't upset. He just kept smiling the whole time. He would not be deterred, not even by complete incompetence on his part. Beltrami, if nothing else, was determined, so he continued on to find the source of the Mississippi. He started what he would call his promenade, which consisted of attaching some buffalo hide to the canoe, hopping into the river, and walking as he pulled the canoe and all of his supplies along behind him. He made his way through the river with the cord of buffalo hide over his shoulder and an oar in his hand for support, and in his own words, back stooping, head looking down, holding conversation with the fishes beneath. When he stopped for the night, Beltrami would not start a fire. He claimed it was because his guides had run off with his steel, as it certainly could not have fallen out into the river thanks to his incredibly poor paddling efforts, or he just didn't know how to start a fire by himself in those connections. Whatever the case, he had to wait for the sun the next morning to warm his body. There was also repeated downpours and thunderstorms as he continued on his journey, but these weren't a problem that slowed him down. Beltrami was already about as wet as a man could be, but he also had to protect his collection, so he took out his large red silk umbrella and propped it up in his canoe. He spent another night tortured by constantly swarming gnats before on the next day he came across another group of Ojibwa making their way downriver in a pair of canoes. They seemed surprised at the sight of the six-foot-tall white man trotting through the river with a canoe clearly made by their tribe being pulled behind him and were hesitant to approach. He seemed to suggest that they may have thought he was some kind of god or spirit, where I wonder if they just saw this lunatic walking in the river pulling a canoe and were afraid to approach the clearly crazy man. He would eventually convince them to approach and was able, after some haggling, to convince an old man from the group to paddle him to Red Lake. Their first night could have gone better. When they went to bed, Beltrami tied the canoe to his ankle to make sure his guy couldn't leave without him. He awoke to a tugging on the cord, and upon realizing some animal was trying to get into their supplies, he fired blindly into the darkness. His elderly guide responded to this surprise by fleeing from the camp, either believing that they were under attack or his companion had lost his mind. No matter how much the Italian yelled into the darkness and fired off his gun, the old man would not return that night. It wasn't until daylight the next morning that they came out from wherever he'd hid himself, and that was when they saw that Petrami had shot a wolf. This did little to comfort the old guide. Between his original impression of the man and after the incident of the night before, he had to be sure that Beltrami was out of his... They had reached the Red Lake, and the guide had left Beltrami basically on the doorstep of another Ojibwa family entrusting him into their care. Upon arriving at their hut, he was immediately greeted by their pet wolf, who tore up his last pair of serviceable pantaloons. While he waited for them to fetch a new guide from across the lake, he witnessed the funeral of the family held for a relative who had been recently killed by the Dakota, or you know, the people that Beltrami thought were of no threat. After getting a couple of new guides, he was finally on his way again. They continued heading upstream, crossing a couple more lakes before arriving in one where there seemed to be no way to continue further upriver from. 
This Beltrami was convinced had to be the singular source of the Mississippi. This was his greatest moment of triumph. With this grand discovery, he was a true explorer. He named the Lake Julie after his dead friend. Beltrami even imagined that the shades of Marco Polo, Columbus, and Amerigo Vespucci were there to congratulate him on his success and upon joining their ranks of the great explorers. His mission complete, it was now time to turn back and declare his triumph to the grateful world. On his way back, he made sure they stopped off at Leech Lake, where an early explorer's expedition to find the source of the Mississippi had come to an end. Beltrami was gracious and called the head of that expedition a bold and enterprising man and attributed his failure to find the true source to the shortcomings of his party. That done, Beltrami wanted to move faster. He wanted to return to receive the praise he so richly deserved. His guides, though, were determined to stop off at a couple of Ojibwe encampments along the way. In one of these encampments, they found an ongoing disagreement on who should lead the tribe, Widemouth or Cloudy Weather. Widemouth was trying to get Cloudy Weather to lead a war party against the Dakota, but Cloudy Weather cleverly suspected that this was a trick to get him out of the way. The arrival of the Italian was fortuitous as they saw him as an impartial arbitrator. Beltrami counseled that they should consult his friend Major Talaferro to settle this. This worked for Cloudy Weather because it ended the talk of the war party, while disappointed Widemouth, who probably did want to eliminate his rival. The situation at the camp seemed to have calmed for the moment. Then the next day, some of their tribe returned from visiting the English and brought with them several barrels of whiskey. The barrels were distributed and all the simmering tensions in the tribe came to a boil with the addition of alcohol to the mix. As the entire tribe seemed to go mad around him, Beltrami took position on a mound of dirt with his gun and sword in each hand. He proved to be an imposing enough figure that no one threatened him, but Cloudy Weather was not so lucky. Upon seeing the chief under attack from two opponents, Beltrami, with help from his guide, rushed to Cloudy Weather's rescue. They had rescued the chief, but his guide had had enough and decided to make his way back to his home. Beltrami was then forced to employ a very hungover Cloudy Weather to take him the rest of the way to Fort St. Anthony. On this final leg of the journey, Beltrami set up his red umbrella as a flag of peace, and it apparently turns out that he had been saved not only now, but in the past by having this large red umbrella up, as the Dakota had assumed he was using it as a signal to call for reinforcements. They could think of no other reason for him to be parading around with this huge, noticeable red umbrella, so they were too afraid to attack him, figuring his backup had to be close by. He also took the opportunity during this time to shoot a skunk and try to figure out what made it smell so much. He then proceeded to dissect the corpse, finding the source of its fluid, and was nearly overcome by the smell. Eventually they reached the fort, where he was greeted by Colonel Snelling and his family, but otherwise Beltrami did not get the glamorous reception or acclaim he had expected. He published a book that was a collection of his letters to the Countess, chronicling his journey, but it didn't sell well. Not many really cared about where the source of a river was. It was mainly only of interest to cartographers and a romantic dreamer like Beltrami. Few also took his claim seriously. He went looking for the source of the Mississippi on the wrong side of the watershed, then claimed the first stream that he found had to be the source without any further exploration. 
so Beltrami and his discovery was largely either ignored or mocked. The true source of the Mississippi would eventually be found in 1832 at Lake Itasca by Henry Schoolcraft. Beltrami would return to Europe disillusioned, knowing he would not get the scholarly recognition as an explorer and a writer he believed he deserved. He would return to Italy and take up a lifestyle inspired by the Franciscan monks, even calling himself Ra Giacomo for a time. He would die in 1855, largely forgotten by the world. But that would not be the end of his story. Remember all those trinkets he was dragging around behind him? The ones that he wore his dogs out trying to get them to pull along? The ones he used his umbrella to shield them from the rain, and the ones he refused to leave his canoe behind for to take a shorter and probably safer route to Red Lake? Well, they now represent the most significant collection of North American Indian objects in Italy and are on display in two museums. He had collected over 100 American Indian objects through exchanges, barter, and purchases documenting where, when, and who he purchased them from. Many of the objects collected by Beltrami are among the oldest of their kind preserved in any American or European museum, including an Ojibwa lacrosse stick and the earliest surviving Native American flute of wood. The flute and another he brought back with him are said to be some of the best preserved specimens of their type. Not only that, but Minnesota, despite his questionable geographic skills, named part of their state after him. 2,500 square miles of upper Minnesota are called Beltrami country in honor of his exploration and elaborate descriptions of the natural beauty of the area. There are even several monuments celebrating the Italian journey through the region. So while he may have been totally unprepared and inexperienced and lacking in the knowledge to know where exactly to go to search for the source of the Mississippi, something no one really cared about, by the way, Giacomo Beltrami did leave behind an important legacy. The importance of his collection of Native American artifacts is something I think Beltrami would have been proud of. Thank you for listening to Distorted History. You can follow the podcast at DistortedHISTO1 on Twitter for updates and sources for the episodes, and you can contact me with suggestions at distortedhistorypod at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash distortedhistory. Thank you once again. Until next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.